Hello, and welcome to an edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Heiho Mooncat & Co, and your old pal Ocho, this week, we have, on the other side of the planet, literally, from Wellington, New Zealand, Birdie. Good morning. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Now, it is morning for yourself, because it's just past 11 o'clock in the morning, as we're recording. It is morning here as well, because it's five past midnight, and Ocho, I mean, you've practically just got up, really, haven't you? Because, what is it there, four o'clock in the, the, the afternoon or something like that? Yeah, it's about five past four. Blimey. So this is a truly international podcast. Now, let us just explain. Let's put this into context. Birdie, you're a long-time listener of the show. You've been listening all the way back to podcast one and before, because before we were a podcast, we were doing some bits and pieces on Cooked and Bombed, the Chris Morris and Peter Cook forum. And of course, that's where you get your moniker from. So if it sounds a bit strange that I'm saying Birdie, that's because that's your moniker on the forum. Yes, that is correct. My first memory of you, Mooncat, is you were eating a cream egg. I'm not so sure. Are you sure you haven't gotten me mixed up with somebody else? Because no, it was I... deep fried. Oh, deep right, fried. we're having the okay, right? <laughs> we're having the conversation. This makes sense now. Okay, so I think that when we were chatting originally, we were having a conversation about how supposedly foodstuffs in Scotland and Glasgow specifically are always deep fried, and this is a myth. This is not true. It is true that chip shops do sell things like deep-fried Mars bars, and some of them will deep-fry things on request. If you go in with a Twix, <laughs> then you can have a deep-fried Twix bar. But it's not actually so prevalent that you could get those kind of things in Tesco. I mean, the local Tesco has Iron Brew more prominently than it would do in England, but they don't have deep-fried oranges and apples or anything like that. It's, it's not that bad. But the reason that we've asked you on today is because this is the first of our series on the subject of class. This week, we are talking about, I suppose you would say, middle-class sitcoms. They're the easiest to start with, really, aren't they? Because for the longest time, sitcom had a reputation as being just middle-class blandness. If you wanted to indicate sitcom in a parody, it would be twee little theme tune... Turn that music down, suburban, semi-detached. It's not really true. Sitcoms have covered all aspects of life, but the ones that seem to be at half past seven on BBC One on whatever night, no place like home, that kind of stuff, it was for a while thought of as a very middle-class genre. I, I sort of tend to associate sitcoms with a particular working-class slant. I tend to associate them more with the mid-1980s, things like Bread, for example. We will be talking about Carla Lane. And I, I was just alluding there, Buddy, that one of the particular reasons that we'd asked yourself along today is because previously you had requested that we discuss the work of Carla Lane. And she'll be somebody that we will be coming back to again and again in this little selection of shows about class. Today we'll be talking about Butterflies. I'm sure that we will be talking about, if not Bread, a show like Bread at some point in what you classes the working class edition. There's only Steptoe's son, isn't there? That's the only one. <laughs> I think Carla Lane is non-working class. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, blimey. Okay, well, that's a whole Pandora's box for next time. We'll delve into that then. But for an example, to back my point up, if you were talking at one point about laugh tracks and you once linked to me a French and Saunders sketch about somebody who won't stop laughing in the studio audience and the sitcom is The Generation Gap, it's done in that style. 
no matter how untrue it was, if somebody in another television program is watching a sitcom, chances are bingy boingy theme tune and was it one of the spitting image books had like a cutout sitcom set and a cutout Jeffrey Palmer and a title card saying ring on their doorbells. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I like that, and if it hasn't been commissioned already, then I want to see it. <laughs> One thing I should make clear is this is probably not going to be the definitive, comprehensive look at class in sitcoms. What we are doing here is we're going to take three individual sitcoms per episode, and we're going to discuss how they portray their particular class element in each one. And we've actually decided in this instance, because we were debating well to include one particular show and out of that we've actually come up with four different class groupings so today we're talking about middle class like we say we will in future editions be talking about working class and upper class but also Ocho, we came up with something sort of called like professional class something of that ilk yes because one of the shows the first show we're going to include has been excluded which was trouble in mind which just felt too Above middle class. Terry Medford in Terry and June, if he lost his job, he'd be in trouble. There'd be problems. He wouldn't have like, oh, I think I'll just float here for a couple of years and spend my savings and then think about what I might like to do with my life. There are characters in sitcoms who are not ruling class, but they're just above that kind of situation. So what was the sitcom with Tony Britton and Nigel Havers? They played doctors. Don't wait up. Would that fit in that sort of professional class one? Yeah, I think so. I think that the the reason that we had qualms about Trouble in Mind going into the middle class category is that, for example, one of the episodes that we were looking at selecting, it's a spoiler, but if you don't want to know how a particular episode of Trouble in Mind ends, then let's face it, it's not going to turn up on, on, on ITV1 anytime soon. But... One particular episode ended with Richard O'Sullivan pulling out tickets to India for Susan Penhaligon saying, oh, look, I got these. We'll go and see the Taj Mahal. That just seems beyond the kind of situation you get in Terry and June. For example, in Terry and June, there's one line where June says, oh, we can't afford a whole set of golf clubs. Well, apparently, Richard O'Sullivan, trouble in mind, could probably afford to buy the damn warehouse where Terry was going for his golf clubs in the first place, out of his loose change. We thought that that was just a little bit too out of reach. I would even say that Richard O'Sullivan, trouble in mind, is wealthier than maybe Sir Dennis in Terry and June. I don't think Sir Dennis is that fixed of a character. I would imagine Sir Dennis's wealth expands in contracts with whatever the joke is. <laughs> Well, okay, let's get down to the specifics of the episodes that we're looking at, because we've picked two episodes of Keeping Up Appearances, Ocho's favourite sitcom. We have chosen two episodes of Butterflies, as I mentioned, and also two episodes of Terry and June. Now, for Ocho's benefit, shall we talk about Keeping Up Appearances first, rather than dragging it out all the way through to the end of the episode? I thought we should start with Terry and June. We're already talking about Sir Dennis... And that is the archetype of the 1970s, 1980s middle-class sitcom. We will look at things more recently than the 1980s as we go on, but I was just about to say that maybe for some people who are too young to remember life before the credit crunch, maybe we should explain what the middle class is. Because they don't exist anymore. There's the 1% and the rest of us eating out of bins. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's, no, that's not what it's called. It's freedom eating or something. Is it freeganism? Oh, sorry, what is this? Freeganism? I wasn't aware Freeganism. Of is that like foraging stuff for free? That's right. That's freeganism. Okay, well, we need to sort of put that into its own little section. I mean, is there a book on freeganism that you can get? I mean, just telling you how to get food for free on a daily basis? I, I think it's made up. We don't have it in New Zealand because we don't have any poor people, so we we don't need to... Okay, well... Move on! <laughs> okay, so, okay, well, if you're happy, Ocho, if you want to save your favourite sitcom till last, then we can start with Terry and June. As long as we start with Terry and June, I think that's the place to start. I don't have many notes about it. I'm going to have to depend on you two to come up with opinions that I can then pounce on and pass off as my own. Should we initially declare what social class we each believe ourselves to belong to? Okay. Well, I've got a checklist based on the sitcoms, and I'm not middle class, apparently, but I am. Oh. I think I am because uh, because our income and education, so I think that makes us, uh, I think it does make me middle class. But I only have one car. I don't know if that's important. I'm lower middle class. I don't think I can back into working class. But I mean, you know, grew up in a terraced house in Bradford. Now, hold on, wait a second. Are we talking about where you came from or where you are? Well, where I am, of course, I my class is white. Without wishing to be too controversial about the structure of American society, class and race are bound together a lot more than they are in the UK. Now, it's interesting over here, the way people talk th- about race is the way... I'm used to talking about class, and occasionally Simda will say, oh, they've gone to the organic supermarket. And I'm thinking, oh, yes, that's because they're A2s on the whatever it is scale. And the follow-up is, you know, because they're white. Well, I don't really know where I put myself on the, the class spectrum because... Scottish. Well, no, I, think I wasn't going to say it. Scotch. Oh, I'm not, I'm not an egg. <laughs> And I'm not I'm not a drink. No, because in terms of income, I would think that I would probably fall into the working class group. And I think I always have done throughout my adult life and probably beforehand as well. But in terms of my interests and my outlook and so on, I suppose I'm probably going to fall into middle class because I was brought up with an emphasis on the importance of education. We didn't always have a lot of cash, but it was always drilled into me in a good way that education is a good thing for its own sake, not just as you get your A-levels and then go to university because that's how you get a good job. It's just education is a good thing in itself. And I think, I don't know, is that a middle class thing? It's interesting you're both thinking of class in terms of income because I never really thought of it in that way. And I remember reading something fascinating, talking about in pop music, you can be slagged off for being middle class. And I remember somebody talking about the case of two bands who actually lived next door to each other. And one was seen as authentically working class and one was seen as a bunch of middle class chances. And someone made the point that middle class really can just be articulate and softly spoken. And you immediately become suspicious to a certain section of society, regardless of where you live, how much you make... My experience, anybody who puts you down for being middle class generally has more money and lives in a bigger house than you. It's like a point about Magpie and Blue Peter. People go, oh, Magpie was the working class one and Blue Peter was for the middle class one. It's like, no, Blue Peter was unashamedly middle class because it was lower middle class. Whereas Magpie, people who wore blazers and ascots, much more received pronunciation as well in the in the 70s. People th- compare John Noakes with... Mick Robertson. Now, 
Magpie so so obsessed with its working class authenticity and sneering at Blue Peter for being middle class. Well, that's upper middle class. Do I have to draw another map? <laughs> the income thing, maybe that I was thinking of that mainly because here it's about accessibility. There's a lot of things like like education. Education's free, but there's a lot you actually have to pay for. And the health system isn't free. Some of it's free, but a lot of things you actually need to have money to do. So income means you've got accessibility to sending your kids off to the right schools. You get to send them off to the right sporting events. Your kid will be the one that goes on the trip to France, that sort of thing. So income here is about accessibility, I think. That's probably why I thought about it. Ah, right. It's my own personal experience in some ways for being immediately being seen as suspicious by people who think I am too too high of a class for them. Frequently people say, well, you're not from around here, are you? No, not here, not in the California. Yeah, that's fine. But people in Bradford saying, how long have you been in Yorkshire? All my life. We should also just put this into context, Brody. You're not originally from New Zealand. Before you were in New Zealand, you were in Portsmouth. So you've been able to experience two different types of what you could call the class system or the social mobility ladder, however you want to term it. Yeah, I mean, I got into a bit of a fight <laughs> on the forum about that. We'll come back to changing later. But um, my dad worked in a factory. My mother uh, was a school cleaner. They both left school at 16. So they didn't have a lot of choice about what they did. They sent three of their children off to university when it was free. And the other uh, my other brother went into an army. He's got a trade. We didn't have a lot of money, but they had those traditional working class values that I think you alluded to about, you know, education is important. Because that, my mother's view was that that was how her kids would get a better life. They owned their own house, which I know is something that is a bit out of reach of people now. But on the other hand, they didn't get a house until, I think, until the second kid came along and mum lived with them, that sort of thing. And dad paid it off all by himself. We never moved. It was just a a three-bedroom terrace house uh, with no natural light. (laughs) Terry and Jim, though, they've got a nice house, eh? They do have a nice house, and (laughs) that was a brilliant segue. Okay, well, let's have a look at Terry and June as our first topic. And I think you're right, Ocho, that Terry is, yes, he's got a middle-class lifestyle, and he's got middle-class outgoings, and he's obviously got his, his, his home and what have you. But yes, it all sort of hinges on his work, and it seems that if he puts Sir Dennis's nose out of joint, then suddenly all that could change. So that seems to be a constant factor throughout. If Terry and June were real, he'd have a lot more stress at work, but generally any stupid thing he has to do on Sir Dennis's tantrums and whims is just a plot device. We understand that Terry has to please his boss. I don't think at any point did we genuinely think, oh my God, Terry might actually lose his job and his car and June will leave him. When we talk about this as being the middle-class sitcom of the 70s and 80s, it's because of the comfort. Terry and June will always be fine. I really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I enjoyed it. And I thought June Whitfield was the best female character as well, so I don't know. I had been drinking. It was genuinely funny, and I'll tell you why it was funny. I know there's a lot of nonsense in the episodes we watched, but they seemed like a couple who actually liked each other's company. They seemed to be affectionate. June actually laughed at Terry's jokes. And she's also, none of the women we looked at had any jobs. They all were sitting at home doing nothing. 
we'll come to butterflies later. But June had, you know, she could play golf. She had friends. She had a bit of an independent life. I think she's actually one for the feminists. I think she's a feminist icon. Ultra, what do you reckon about this? Because, I mean, I think... Uh... Okay, now I, I don't know. I don't know what to say now because I think that whatever I'm going to say next is going to be wrong, and I could get flamed for it. But okay, I'll be honest. Here's what I was going to say. I was going to say first of all, yeah, well, we actually should look at feminism in sitcoms in a future podcast, and then right now here's the punchline. No, no, right, okay. Do you know what I was going to say after that? And I'm, I apologise for any offence that this may cause. I was then going to say, Ocho, I think that probably we'd better just step out of that one entirely. As if to say, oh, this is this is women's business. We've, we've got we've got no place here. <laughs> so I didn't I didn't mean it to sound like that at all. But no, I think you're right. I think that you could you could of course include what's her name in that Beryl Marston, not Beryl Marston herself, but Julie McKenzie's character because she's making her own way in the world and she's got her own business and so on. And but we did kind of make the point that it wussed out a bit on that independence, and that in the end it was all about is she going to get together with that. Monster. It's not even about independence. When, when we go back to we've got butterflies or keeping up appearances, Rhea, she doesn't do anything. She really doesn't. I'm, I was quite disappointed watching it again when I realised that she doesn't do anything. At her age, she doesn't seem to have any friends. She can't cook. She's not taking any evening classes. And why? To, oh, I just can't understand why Ben comes home at lunchtimes when she can't cook. She doesn't do anything. Oh, Nothing. She could learn from Anne Bryce. I have got something controversial to say about Rhea later on. And I'm... I've said that now, so now I've got to say it. But I will say it later on. And then I will duck. A couple of bits and pieces about Ten in June. One I would say... Yeah, I actually, of all the three shows that we watched, I enjoyed this one the most. It's good fun. And, and also, yes, it is very middle class. And I think that, obviously, Ten in June is the inspiration for the little sitcom pastiche in the younger ones called Oh Crikey. But what makes it middle class? How do you know you're watching it? Okay. Well, I have theories. Let me put a couple of ideas forward. There is a benchmark which I find myself coming back to again and again. The episode of Stepstone Son called The Desperate Hours with Leonard Roster begins with Steptoes going through a box of old foreign coins trying to find one which will fit the meter so they can get the light and the heat back on. I do find myself frequently in sitcoms where you've got some sort of, I mean, okay, every sitcom has some sort of element of potential peril in it because that's what the situation is. So each time I see the situation unfold and you're being asked to sympathize with the character, sometimes it will get to the point where if it's perhaps a very, very middle-class situation, I find myself thinking back to the Steptoes looking for old foreign coins and thinking, how do you fare against them? And therefore, is this really a big problem? Richard O'Sullivan trying to buy your big yacht? <laughs> I could never, ever sympathise with that character because I couldn't relate to him. And also, I just felt there's other people with more pressing concerns. Well, the problem there... It's not so much that he has this concern, it's that it's being presented as a concern. I mean, he's a psychiatrist. There are funny things you can do about psychiatry. I think, we haven't rubber-stamped it yet, but when we get to business and professional class, we'll also look at surgical spirits. Now, these are people with nice cars who don't have to worry about coins in 
power meters, but those aren't presented as concerns. It's more interesting stuff that's presented as as the concerns in their life. I think that's what the problem with Troubling Mind is. They pick the wrong aspect of life to harp on about. Pardon, you said you had a couple of ideas about Terry and June. The woman has no job. That's my first observation, but that's a period piece. There has to be at least one scene where the couple spent all their time talking in bed. That seems to be very important. Hallways. There's always a hallway. You don't have open plan lounges in um, middle-class sitcoms. and There'll always be a flower display. And uh, more importantly, no one ever watches the television. I did find another one, but it was a bit specific, which was if there is a character who's a dentist, then he should be called Ben. (laughs) Although I do think, and this is a criticism I have of butterflies, is that I think actually uh, Ben is an orthodontist. He's not a dentist. And I think that's an important distinction. I'm just saying. So, okay, quick listener competition. If you can think of any other sitcoms apart from Butterflies and My Family, which feature... <laughs> you got me. <laughs> ...a dentist or an orthodontist called Ben, then please tweet us at the sitcom club and let us know. And if, if seriously, if anybody tweets us and gives us a legitimate answer for that, and we'll check it against the Radio Times Guide to Comedy, <laughs> if you come up with a, an example of a sitcom character called Ben, who works in the dentistry profession, then I will send you a copy of BBC More Great Comedy Moments, which I've got sitting on the shelf. It was a freebie with one of the newspapers. But what, what is this thing about sitting and talking in bed all the time? I see it a lot on sitcoms, and it seems to be, you know, my family's a, a particular one where it happens all the time. Why? And Malcolm and Wise. <laughs> well, well, exactly, exactly. Yeah, they're not middle class, are they? I've got a theory. I know it's nonsense, but I'm going to put it forward anyway. I'm going to suggest that, particularly in middle-class sitcoms, the reason that the couple are always talking in bed is to just allay any concerns that the viewer may have that their favourite sitcom couple might actually be doing it in bed. And by having them sitting there talking and then putting the lights out, then we're just establishing there's none of that kind of nastiness going on on BBC One at 8 o'clock. No, but in the real world... She would have gone to bed. He'd be up on watching Sopranos or something <laughs> or other. They don't go to bed at the same time anymore. Who sits up in bed reading? Come on. Well, I think there might be a technical reason as well. It's a nice domestic scene in which two people talk to each other while facing the same direction. Oh, you your logic. But they're not looking at the TV screen, so their attention can kind of go back and forth. And also, if they're in a double bed, you can also get the camera in a little closer. There was a nightstand between them and they're in two single beds. Cameron would have to pull out. It's nice for mid shots. You take all the magic away. And that's, <laughs> but that's um, arrangement. That's 40 Towers arrangement, isn't it? Separate beds. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also the reason why the staff of Grace Brothers all sit on one side <laughs> of the canteen table. <laughs> what are you going to say then? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not like well, that. I don't remember that scene. <laughs> well, no, there actually, there are a couple of episodes which do involve them staying overnight together but there's nothing like that going on i mean it's it's all very much they've still got their, their jackets on and everything is everybody dismissing my theory about how it's all a bbc plot to just establish that none of that kind of thing happens that kind of thing that's yeah. reserved for dennis potter plays at nine twenty-five. you don't get that kind of thing the simpsons do it as well don't they they're fairly working class aren't they i guess so yeah. i was going to say that i didn't entirely agree 
before anybody says, hang on a minute, when you sit on a sofa, you're facing in the same direction. But generally, you turn towards the person sitting next to you on the sofa, and also the TV's going to be there casting strange blue light on your face. And I was going, I was going to stick to my technical thing, but then I thought, Tom and Barbara Good, who we know have a very full and active sex life by the way they talk to each other, we never see them in bed, do we? So maybe it is that kind of thing of like, well, we can't show them in bed because everybody knows what's going to happen the very second they stop talking. Uh, I'm going to have to... Now, hang on a minute, though. I'm just thinking about the Bryce's in ever-decreasing circles. We see them talking in bed, but we also do know that occasionally, in fact, while they're lying in bed, Anne will uh, propose kiddie minstering as an activity. I'm going to say this because I suspect that... class is rubbish. Let's talk about sex, baby. (laughs) I'm going to say this just now because I suspect that G. Baker is shouting this at her speaker right now there is an episode of the good life which but it's not a standard setup we don't see them in bed as often as we see terry with june okay yeah but there is a there's an episode of the good life which concerns tom and barbara getting upset at jerry and margot for having evening soirees and what have you when they've got to be up to milk the cows or whatever at 40 a.m. and i'm sure that does actually show them in bed i say it never happened but not with the same consistency so i'm agreeing with you mooncat don't you're arguing yourself out of well, no, we don't have, we do not have arguments on the sitcom club. We have differences of opinion. Yeah, but my opinion was aligning with yours, and then you decided to, <laughs> your opinion no longer aligned with your own. Well, hang on, that makes me a troll against myself. I'd like my mum and dad to have been like Terry and June. I thought it was lovely in the beginning where they go out in the garden and he knocks the drinks over and stuff. I thought it was adorable. Oh, Just no. looked really nice. And they had lots of sun in their rooms and stuff. It was. Oh, sure, my grandma's had to spoil. Birdie's lovely idyllic picturing of Teddy and June in the garden because I think you know what I'm going to allude to now. No. Well, no, I in, don't. In both the episodes that we'd selected for the show, they both contain what you'd call the traditional Teddy and June opening. And that is Teddy comes out with some drinks, pops them on the table, he sits down, and his sun lounger collapses. Now, that's the one that I think is used more often than not. There are a couple of variants. One is that they both sit down and they just have a drink and everything's fine. And then the other one is you're waiting for Teddy to fall backwards and then suddenly it's June's sun lounger that collapses. Now, in that one, Teddy isn't going, oh, June, are you okay? He's going, ha! And he's pointing his finger out as if to say, ha, look, ha, you fell down. So, yeah, I'd say that that actually isn't very nice on Teddy's part. And I think sort of bulldozes this argument that they are the perfect couple. I think that there is, whatever it is, I don't know what it is that's playing on Teddy's mind. He's obviously got some particular grievance that he's perhaps he's harboured for 20 years or so that he never speaks about <laughs> and oh very very occasionally it just comes out in little bursts like that and maybe one one week we'll actually discuss that in the second club maybe we'll i thought you were going grievance. to mention happy ever after where we watched the episode and june seemed to be a lot more on terry's case well terry was being a lot more pompous wasn't he actually buddy you should definitely see some happy ever after of course being the sort of prequel effectively to terry and june because the characters are not quite as they are in Teddy and June. Teddy definitely is a bit more pompous, and yeah, June is a bit tougher. Teddy, they've certainly mellowed over the years. And like real people. Yeah. Yeah, they're real people, you see. Now, the second show that we looked at this week is Butterflies. Carla Lane. Birdie, you tweeted us quite a while ago, and 
requested that we discuss, Caroline. And with our usual speed and efficiency, here we are, some <laughs> eight months later, responding to your request. And let me just point out just now, a lot of people have asked us to talk about particular shows. Lapscat just tweeted us recently asking if we would talk about Keep It in the Family. Definitely we'll talk about that. We'll probably do that in conjunction with the American version too close for comfort. Do a little comparison there. Uh, we are going to get to everyone's requests, guaranteed. We do keep all the requests listed and we are going to be getting to them. I suspect what we're probably going to do, because we're going to take a summer break of sorts. More information about that in a few weeks' time. And then when we come back after the summer, Ultra, I'm going to put this on the record right now, and this is immovable. When we come back after the summer, we've probably got one particular show in mind to come back with, and after that, we're going to do everyone's requests, and we're not going to do any more shows of our own choice until we've dealt with each and every one of them. How about that? Okay. My only reservation is I want to do watching properly, and that's 58 episodes to watch. Well, you better get started then. It's my fault we put off Carla Lane so long, because I said I didn't really want to just pick something and yak on about it. I wanted to try and watch as much as possible, but then... Other stuff got in the way, like watching the gaffer and then not talking about it. <laughs> that was my fault because I ran out of time and Ocho actually did watch two episodes of the gaffer and took notes on them. And then he phoned me up that night and I just said, yeah, I didn't get around to it in the end. But yeah, we'll come back to the gaffer at some point and talk about Bill Maynard buggering up his lines. But anyway, no time like the present. Let's talk about Caroline. Butterflies, 1978. Birdie, before I come out with this controversial too hot for tv opinion about ria can you let us know your thoughts on butterflies it was actually quite hard going watching two episodes back to back after so long i tried to watch it with a critical eye because i didn't want to let you guys down <sighs> she was just so annoying the fox hunting episode i couldn't understand why this woman who is meant to be She's done nothing, and she's got this confidence to go and do all this campaigning and stuff. It just annoyed me. She just annoyed me in that episode. I think the trouble is, is that watching it again, there were just things that jarred. I found myself being quite sympathetic towards Ben, which I t probably didn't the first time round. Oh, she just annoyed me. I just found it so irritating after a time. But there were some good bits. I do remember at the end with the, the Christmas card scene when they were in bed and she opened the Christmas card. I thought that was actually a very, very good scene. But a lot of it, the picnic scene at the beginning, and she's waving around, and all the foxes are coming, and blah, blah, blah. And there was a laughter track, and I thought, this isn't funny. This is more like a drama at that point. And that's what I had trouble with as well. It seemed to be a bit disjointed. I was disappointed. Some of it made me laugh, but I, I could understand things like, because I think about the class thing, I thought... Well, okay, Ben's an orthodontist, but even so, he can't earn that much money to support two cars, two grown-up kids, have a cleaner that's there, seems to be there 24 hours a day. It just didn't make any sense. But I like Wendy Craig. I, did, I, I didn't not enjoy it. I just, oh, she just annoyed me a bit. I thought she was a bit silly, but uh, that's all. But that's with my head on now as compared to when it came out, I guess, as well. Different era. Okay, I'm going to come out with my controversial opinion. And I wish to preface this by saying I understand that I am not a middle-aged married woman with two kids and therefore my <gasps> view on this may be not just unfair, but maybe I'm not the best person to judge Rhea's outlook on life. However, <laughs> in the couple of episodes that I saw and also episodes I've seen previously because recently it's been running on UK TV drama 
channel. There's one thing that's always running through my mind, and that is that you can't help who you fall for. So this is not trying to give a reason as to why Rhea shouldn't fall for Leonard, but it's clear that Ben does love Rhea. And I suspect that perhaps I'd be a little bit more sympathetic to Rhea if Ben wasn't so warm towards her. And he doesn't even have to be a nasty character. It's just that if he was like Martin, if he was completely wrapped up in his own little world and just didn't take anybody else's opinions on board and just didn't notice Rhea at all, then I could sort of understand where Rhea's coming from. But Ben just seems... Ben, to me, seems like quite a good husband and father. And so I don't quite get why it is that Rhea seems wondering what's it all about, what's the point of all this, and also with one eye on Leonard. You've got it absolutely right there, and I think that's the problem. That's why I had trouble watching it back. I thought those same things. When Ben was... Okay, it's meant to be a bit, what, cruel catching butterflies. I don't care, he's got a hobby. But he was very he's kind to her. He's tolerated that appalling situation with her cooking all these years. She doesn't seem to have any life. It's like, you know, come on, your kids are grown up. Do something. If she had been Daisy in Keeping Up Appearances... That would be, I could have been more sympathetic, but she wasn't. She was, she had everything and she could have done something with herself. I have an idea. Do you think that this is a bit out of time in its writing? That this is an idea that Carla Lane's been carrying around for a long time? It's a bit like Yes Minister. The early episodes of Yes Minister, it's fairly obvious that he's actually Labour, and this is an early to mid 70s. Sure, and this is something she's been carrying around since before opportunities were available to women like that. And by the time it's hit the screen, she's a little bit of a throwback. It's not even the fact that she doesn't work. That's that's fine, to, you know, to do the timing and all that sort of thing. But it's the fact she doesn't do anything. She's not out there working the community. You don't even see her doing anything to help Ben's career. And she can't have some kind of psychological illness because she's out there standing on a soapbox saying, come on, everybody, let's stop the fox hunt. Today, it would have been quite a different sitcom. It was just that she doesn't seem to have any part of her own life, but it seems to be her fault. I think that's the trouble. Why it's I was more sympathetic to the male characters, even oh, those layabout sons. They were very kind to her. You know, everyone's kind. So what is what is her problem? Mooncat? I'm going to bail you out here because I think my opinion is even more too hot for TV. Oh, what? I mean, are you talking sort of Jerry Springer level? I don't care about any of them and they can all go to hell. (gasps) They're all so arch. (laughs) They all talk like characters in a sitcom, but not quite. There's a really high theatrical style in here. It's not done necessarily in the sitcom theatrical style, but it means everybody's just a bit too up. There's not much room for people to breathe, for them just little bits of filler, little bits of character stuff that isn't a zinger or a complaint about how terrible their lives are. Also, there's a light in Futurama. I can't quite remember it, but there's something about the characters are just saying how they feel. You can't do that. That makes me feel angry. And this was full of, I feel like this and I feel like this and I'm going to state the metaphor. Did nobody think it was odd? You know, the cooking scene in the kit- where, where they says, 
then takes the pizza and that. We know she can't cook, but nobody balked when she said there were some sprouts. Who has ever served pizza with sprouts? I'm just saying. <laughs> that was just ridiculous. I've got no time for it. I but, would like but to. But having said that, Leonard's all right. She should have gone off with him. Ben should have gone off with somebody else. There's a nice bit where Leonard is talking with his chauffeur. It's really nicely underplayed and it sounds like a conversation. Maybe I was clinging on to that because everything else was... And that's what's so disappointing because that bit was good. And I say the Christmas card thing was very nicely observed because it was like it was bringing in something from her outside life, well, into the marital bed, actually. It's only a card. That was actually very nicely observed. And it's just a shame that there wasn't a little bit more of that and a little bit more of the less of, oh, I don't know why I'm going on with my life. What's it all about? We didn't need all that. And, and the- why have a... Why have a turkey delivered like that? That was stupid. Well, you've never seen the Christmas special of That's My Boy. (laughs) Crikey. (laughs) Okay, hands up everybody who's watched an episode of That's My Boy on Christmas morning on Granada Plus. And it wasn't even a Christmas episode. Oh. I got my hand up. (laughs) No. Don't watch TV. I'm middle class. (laughs) Now, okay. Before I make this next point, I would just like to say that Given that I'd said earlier on about how I've got a terrible memory for character names, Birdie, when you said if she was anything like Daisy from Keeping Up Appearances, oh, yeah. I actually thought you were going to say Daisy Duke from Dukes of Hazard. I don't know why I was thinking that, but because you're a dirty old man, probably. Well, if Rhea was more like Daisy Duke, then what would she be like? I don't know the <laughs> answer to that question. <laughs> she'd be like, oh, well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll supply the, my own answer. She'd be like Daisy Duke. She wouldn't be like Rhea. There you are. We need to put this into class context, really. The moment we're just sticking the knife in. Just one last prod of the knife. One of the episodes ends with Albanoni's Adagio playing over footage of a butterfly on a piece of barbed wire. Well, hang on. No, I've what got this. I've got this on my. I've got this on my notes. Right? Is that the piece that plays every bloody time Leonard and we are together? Because that did get okay. That got on my nerves. The fact that I needed as a viewer, to have a musical cue every time they meet, as if to say, this is the soppy bit now. Soppy bit's coming on. Uh, would it actually appear on the CFAX subtitles? Would it say something to that effect that, oh, the Luffy Duffy music's now playing? What they shouldn't have had. What was it? What do you say it was? I'm a Philistine. I apologize. Albanoni's Adagio. I knew that. Uh, okay, they shouldn't have had that. They should have had that piece that Simon Bates used to play on our tune. That's what they should have had. Crocky, yeah. I'm going to or they could have had Barbara's Adagio for strings. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Mooncat, you listen to Radio 1. You should recognise Albanone's Adagio from Simon Mayo's Confessions. Oh, I never liked that. Oh, Then I, I guess you that. wouldn't. Okay. No. Okay, if it was up to me, I'm going to choose the first song that pops into my head and then that's what I'm going to replace that track with. The first song that's popped into my head is... The Wurzels. I've got a brand new Combine Harvester. Right, so that's what's going to play each time they meet on screen. Okay, I'm going to my music folder. I'm going to look at the MP3s and I'm going to choose the one that was most recently modified in my music folder on my computer. Date modified. And that would be Tony Christie, Avenues and Alleyways. (laughs) Perfect. Excellent. Okay, Okay, can I make a point about putting this into class context? Because... I may have expressed some strong views about Snakes and Ladders a few weeks ago. 
which I stand by. But earlier on, I said about how I wasn't entirely sure where it would fit on the class spectrum. It depends on whether you're talking about income or if you're talking about just general outlook or hobbies or education or whatever it may be. But there's one recurring bit in Butterflies which suddenly brings out the working class bit in me. And that's when Cleaning Lady comes along. And what normally happens is that Rhea's doing one of her ah, bits and then the cleaner comes in and she'll say something like peeing down outside and the audience just absolutely pisses themselves laughing. Oh, this woman with her coarse language. Oh, mm-hmm. and Rhea will sort of close her eyes and go, oh, like that. And I'm thinking, what the hell is so funny about that? Okay, yeah, she's a working class woman. She uses working class language. It's not like she swears like a docker. It's not like she suddenly just read out page 52 of Roger's Profanosaurus. She's just using normal, everyday language. But yeah, for some reason, that's absolutely hilarious in this particular context. And yeah, there's a little bit of sort of working class in me that sort of comes out and says, why is that funny? So I guess the class thing partially is Rhea not having anything to do. I think maybe if she was slightly higher, she'd be something in society in charge of the Women's Institute or it'd be a bit like the the Map and Lucia thing. You know, they have their little, I can't think of anything to say, but like George Mannering's an alderman, some female. Yeah. She'd be something where she'd get get to organize people. If she was working class, she'd probably have to do something. Not necessarily work, but there would probably be, well, because she wouldn't have a cleaner. So that's the class aspect there. And the sons are a pair of magpie watchers. <laughs> yeah, we're, we've got enough money to do what we like and we're quite comfortably off so we can pretend <sighs> that we're like really real and street oh, men. And they go to fancy dress parties. Oh, nobody ever spoke like that, did they? I think they did in the 70s. And that's why the 80s were invented. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, well... Ocho, I know you can't wait any longer, so let's get to Keeping Up Appearances. There's something about the point of view of Keeping Up Appearances that seems to be much more looking from the outside in and laughing. And of course, Roy Clark, like Carla Lane, like whoever wrote Terry and June, is by this point a professional television writer. But there must be something in his makeup that's a little... If you look at all the other things he's written, I mean, Carla Lane bounces between middle and working class. Roy Clark tends to stay most of the time on on cert, a certain street level because he's northern. I mean Yorkshire because of Carla Lynn's, but northern. But you know, <sighs> I don't like keeping up appearances. I messaged Yocho when I was watching the first of the two that we selected because we selected a couple of episodes: one from series one, one from series two. The series two episode called "Driving Mrs. Fortescue." I did find that a bit of a chore. I found just the whole sort of business of it i just thought yeah this is this sort of grating on my nerves a little bit the other episode from series one i found much more interesting not necessarily entertaining but i found it much more interesting because you had the class divide so obviously played out in daisy's home with hyacinth there that bit i found interesting and then the the dialogue between richard and onslow as well I found that interesting. I like those bits and pieces, but the the set pieces where Hyacinth's now going off somewhere to do something and it's going to end up in some sort of farcical situation, I wasn't so interested in those bits. I suppose the thing is that in the first episode, which was 
quite hard going. You had all three classes there, but they were also parodied, aren't they? You could on Zone Daisy's house. It's disgusting. It doesn't have to be that way, does it? What to what? So we can have some stereotypical characters like a slattern, a type of the heart. Kind of lazy, I guess. And I was quite shocked. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, it was quite a liberal use of the word bitch, wasn't there? Did you notice that? <laughs> they didn't even do a good job of it. There is a female dog. Yeah, shut up, you silly old bitch. And that goes for you too, dog. <laughs> well, no, there must be a more elegant way of conveying that he was talking to the dog. If only just to have somebody react and say, I was talking to the dog. I was talking about the one where the guy's walking along with the, the tray of glass and he drops them when she hoots the horn. Complete stranger turns around and shouts that, you silly old bitch. I missed that bit. Oh, did you? I'm still struggling with the idea of um, somebody being called a bitch at that time of the day on TV. It's weird. I don't know if they could have really sold the idea just by handling the whole show differently. There's some gulf between the script and the production that I then think the script starts running after. The episode that broke me, I can't remember exactly what happened, but for some reason Hyacinth needed to get from point A to point B without anybody seeing her. And she does this bizarre crouching walk with one hand sticking out and wobbling. I think sometimes yeah, Roy Clark will start something out and then he will start writing towards the expectations of the audience. Problem is, is it's supposed to be a farce, but it already starts out so high. I'm going to probably single out Patricia Routledge for this. She's already kind of mugging and twitching. It doesn't really have anywhere to go. And maybe it's the southernness as well. I think she should be northern. She's northern. No, but Hyacinth should be definitely northern with an accent that slips. I'm, I'm going to say that this should be made many, many years earlier with somebody more like Thora Heard who would often go into that Dre Wayne telephone voice. It's weird, like all the sisters, Rose and Daisy and Opium Poppy and whatever, they're all fairly received pronunciation. What is Hyacinth trying to get away from? Have, have the other sisters descended to this point? And doesn't she have another sister who's quite comfortably off? So it's like, has, has Hyacinth ascended and is trying to kick it away? Because Daisy and Rose don't seem quite so mired in the world. And of course, yeah, the, the horrible gross-out kitchen, it's, that's wildly exaggerated. So it just brought questions to my mind. I think that they've descended. I think what's happened is, the backstory, I think Daisy fell in love with Onslow and then he's turned out to be a bit of a wastrel. So he's brought her down. Rose, disappointed all through her life. I can't think of any other explanation. I can't think of any explanation as to why Daddy doesn't live with Hyacinth either. That's that's terrible. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm just I'm just is thinking. It, of... Is it though? <laughs> well, I no, I know. Like... I think you're right because Hyacinth often, as you'd expect, she's often expressing concern about Daddy, and she's worried that he's given sort of too much sort of free reign where he is. He's not being looked after properly. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think, why would she She's at home all day. She's got nothing to do, has she? She's at home all day. Doesn't Um, have a job. Ocho, what you said there about Hyacinth should be more northern in that regard, as in her accent. Everybody should be more northern. Um, Hyacinth, more northern with an accent that slips is Mrs. Slocum. That's true. Yes, that part of the problem is, is that the facade doesn't really slip with Hyacinth. When she gets out of her depth, she just 
starts pulling faces. Molly Sugden as Hyacinth might have worked. Might have given the character somewhere to go when things didn't work. It was interesting watching the first one being quite an early one. And there's a nice scene in the car where they're, you know, they're constantly going back and forth. And it's all being played on a certain level. It's not too goofy. I think later on it just got goofier and goofier. And so you're trying to escalate from about as high as you can possibly go anyway. I'm just thinking, when you said that you'd never really see her mask slip, you do ever so slightly at the end of the episode driving Mrs. Fortescue, when Onzo says what you have in, and she's large whiskey. Very, very occasionally she'll just... She'll just think, okay, I'm going to stop. But, I mean, there was, that, there was also that bit where she was annoyed by the fact that Onslow was there, but she started talking in a weird kind of Muppet voice. Oh, good, Onslow's here. How wonderful. Something along those lines. <laughs> but bringing the class into it, the, well, no, one of the points is, though, that it's the ascenders, it's the social ascenders who you really have to watch out for. Richard is comfortable in his world, and he's quite comfortable talking to Onslow. He doesn't feel he'll lose status. Nonslow doesn't think, oh, Richard's coming around. You know he's going to rub it in our faces. And No, they get on quite well. And that's and in Driving Miss whatever, they all sit around a pub and they I don't know if there's really any greater point being made. But it is Hyacinth versus everybody else most of the time, isn't it? She's awful, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. She's a bitch. Party, we can't have language like that before nine o'clock. Well, if that had been the title of the show... <laughs> But is it an 80s or 90s sitcom? Started in 1990, 1990, yes. Yes, because they've got lots of nice location footage that's also on VT, which is the kind of thing we'd notice, which makes it look weird. The character she was playing, the way she dressed, you know, like she was always going to a wedding, that all that kind of stuff, that looks like it's a woman her age. She looks like she should be living at least 20 years earlier. That's what I find trouble with all the, the characters, actually, in a lot of Roy Clark stuff, to be honest, is they just seem to be so misplaced in terms of time. It, it never comes across as contemporary. I, I can't see how that would be contemporary in the 90s. Nobody dresses like that, really. And women of that age who aspire to be higher class, that's not the way they live their lives. It really isn't. It's just so caricatured. If they'd made a point of that, that she believes in some sort of idealised version of being high class i think you do find it in some places i tell you it's it's interesting over here there are a couple of expat free newspapers and reading them the the adoration of the royals and the view of britain seems strangely 40 years out of sync other roy clark things it doesn't seem i know there was a complaint when they brought back open all hours since well those kinds of shops don't exist anymore yes they do where i'm from if I went round Bradford looking, I would find a few shops that were like Arkwright's, even now. Not so many as there once were, but even then, I mean, it's suburban Doncaster. The The original series ended in 1985. Some of the characters are, are recognisably sort of music hall types, but nothing really jarred with me. It's like, yes, yes, I, I, I knew people like that. I just think he's rubbish during women. Well, in that case, we need to get you to watch the first episode of Potter because that is Roy Clark letting out his inner Carla Lane, and we do have a woman complaining about having nothing to do and having a little soliloquy, and I think it's a bit more effective than anything in Butterflies that we watched. I was watching an armchair theatre you wrote the other day, which was all about Beryl Reed and female sexuality. 
crikey. He's he's not subtle, but sometimes he he interests me because sometimes I think he's trying to write like Roy Clark, and occasionally he's not. There's things like he did a drama called I think it was Some Foreign Field with Leo McKern, Alec Guinness, Lauren Bacall. And apart from the fact that it does have the repeated phrases, what would I be doing saying repeated phrases style of line? It didn't fall into his usual way of doing things. I think he sometimes gets comfortable or sometimes he's told to get comfortable. But in the 60s, he wrote for drama shows. He wrote for Mr. Rose and things like that. He interests me strangely. Okay, well, let's wrap up our look at the middle class and sitcoms with, we'll have a quick round table. Aside from the free shows that we watched, are there any other particular examples that you can think of of the portrayal of the middle class in sitcoms? Anything you can think of as a definitive portrayal of the middle class? No, I mean, no. The, the word Good definitive I... is <laughs> a little intimidating. Rachel Perrin, okay. Absolutely. Definitely, definitely that would be middle class. She doesn't have a job, does she? They never watch the TV. They're in the bed. He, well, I was thinking about he makes an interesting comparison between him and Rhea because he's, he's got the same sort of he's not really comfortable in mid-70s society and he's wondering about why, why are we all so cruel to each other, what's going on. But Reginald Perrin, I've said this before, Reginald Perrin was changed by being Leonard Rossiter and not Ronnie Barker as was originally envisioned. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think Ronnie Barker's Reginald Perrin would have been sent mad by the system. Whereas Leonard Roster's Reginald Perrin, it was always there and it was just looking for the moment to break out. He had played the game long enough, but he was always going to go crazy. It's latent. I cannot imagine that working. I'm trying to think of Ronnie Barker, but I'm thinking of him as I'm thinking of as Fletcher, quite frankly. I can imagine Ronnie Barker, the way that he played the character in Seven of One, the episode of Prunel Scales, that's how I sort of imagine him being Reggie Perrin as just someone who's fairly normal but given to slightly eccentric turns and turns of phrase and actions and so on. What colour was his hair in that? Was it grey or black? Ronnie Barker's normal grey. No, it wouldn't work. <coughs> Move on. <laughs> okay. I fancy Fletcher. I've always found him quite attractive. Well, he's got that sort of roguish charm, hasn't he? He has, hasn't he? Him and John Thor. Move on. Okay, what about if, instead of meeting Leonard, Rhea had met Reggie Perrin? How would they have got on? Not well. Well, could you not say that they're two lost souls looking for each other? Reggie's nuts. Yes, he is. Leonard is cultured and suave. And Reggie's kind of at a certain level of... (laughs) <laughs> well, what if she met Rigsby? Is another thought? <laughs> well, but the thing is that Rigsby would, would be trying to make himself look. Rigsby would be trying to act like Leonard and pretend to be yes, really. But would then say something horrible. Yes. What if Leonard had met Ruth Jones? I think they would have been very happy together. Now, if you want middle class sitcoms, there's no place like home. Ran for 43 episodes. I thought you were going to say years. My recollection, that was William Gaunt. And my recollection of that was that it was fairly bland. Is that? Yes. Except, of course, when it revealed some interesting stuff about racial politics in the mid-80s. 
when the daughter brought home a boyfriend and he was black and that was like a punchline every oh, oh that was a big surprise and then there was that weird speech where it revealed that the neighbors seemed to think it was a bad idea and everybody i think except william gaunt agreed in this conversation the thing the line was he's black she's white they're different as as this is a reason why they shouldn't be together do, do you guys remember a program with george cole don't forget to write do you remember that no, was this, this was about him, he was playing the part of a writer, wasn't he? With, yeah, but why I thought of that is that, back to Butterflies as well, Butterflies, No Place Like Home, Don't Forget to Write, all got that thing about having adult children living in the house, you wish they'd get on and get a job and get out. Do you still see that in sitcoms these days? Because in the old days it was like, you know, they get a job, get out, but there's so many people living at home with their parents now. Oh yeah, no, and actually, right. I, I've seen that as a setup, as a situation. I've seen that in a couple of shows, one British show and one American show, just within the last couple of years. It's something that does sort of crop up, and of course, okay, middle class comes home to roost. Well, it's a bit lower middle class, isn't it? Though, of course, he didn't. He went to a public school. Yes, but would you not say that John Foss' character is something of a social climber. Yes, but he's not got the killer instinct that Hyacinth has. There's a certain amount of phoniness that he wouldn't put up with that Hyacinth would from somebody they thought was was a level above. Well, we will resume our discussion on class-based sitcoms. We'll all be talking about working class or upper class or professional class, as we called it. And Now pick one now and go with it. It's not necessarily in the next podcast, but the next time we do our examination of class, the class will be... Working! Okay. Right, well, Barty, thank you very much indeed for your time today. You're welcome. Old show, as ever. Thank you very much. You're welcome. A couple of brief things to mention before we depart. One is, if you're listening to this show on the day it came out, which is Wednesday, this Friday at 5.20 on ITV3, there is a repeat run beginning of Man About the House. Now, just to refer back to something from last week, we were talking about Joe and her lack of surname. And we actually did tweet Sally Thompson and we asked her, do you know if Joe ever had a surname? And she replied and said, not as far as she was aware. She was never given a surname for the character. And so she's very kindly agreed to choose a surname for Joe based upon your suggestions. So if you either email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com or tweet us at sitcomclub, we'll compile all the suggestions and then we'll send them off to Sally Thompson and we will let you know what she chooses as Joe's official surname. So there we go. And hopefully then we will get in touch with Fremantle and we'll get them to like sort of re-edit all the episodes so that they've now got Joe's new surname at the end of them. I don't think that'll happen, but, you know. A couple of other things. If you are a pay TV refuse, Nick, and you keep on missing all these great repeats on gold and what have you, you'd be pleased to hear that the channel yesterday, Channel 19 on Freeview, has recently started repeating open all hours. And in conjunction with some repeats of Last of Summer Wine, these are on Friday, Saturday and Sunday evenings, and you'll find it on Channel 19 on Freeview. And just finally, this Saturday coming... Saturday, 17th of May, 8 o'clock in the evening on BBC Two, there is a tribute to Bob Larby. It's a little piece hosted by Penelope Keefe, and there's a repeat of the Comedy Connections documentary on ever-increasing circles, and then the relatively recent All About the Good Life documentary as well. So, next week, Ocho and I will be going to the movies, but not to see Godzilla. No, 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 no. We will be looking at three classic 
sitcom big screen adaptations of yesteryear. Until then, on behalf of Ocho and Birdie, this is Mooncat saying thank you very much indeed for listening to Sitcom Club.